Like Pastor Eric mentioned, we are back to Galatians as uh, we continue to study and move forward in this, um, this epistle that is considered the grand opus of epistles. And I think um, <clears throat> it would behoove us if you have just been kind of skirting around the edges that you allow yourself to dig in, to dig in to what this um, book in the Bible will offer you in terms of understanding salvation. So the first two chapters, we finished chapter one, the first two chapters, though, we're now in two. <clears throat> well, actually, the book in itself is a defense of our justification by faith, um, that we are justified before a holy God, not by the works of the law, but by faith in his son whom God provided. John 1:17 says this, for the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. And what is that grace that came through Jesus Christ? Romans 3:24 points it out perfectly. It says we are justified by his grace <clears throat> as a gift as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus whom God put forward as a propitiation meaning a, an appeasement an atonement by his blood so that we can receive that by faith there's the simple gospel in a nutshell. And this is the very gospel that Paul is defending through the church of Galatia. <clears throat> it is simple. It is pure. The gospel is complete. And as Hebrews says, it saves to the utmost. And you have some folks now that, I don't know why you would want to mess with this thing. They want to alter it. They want to change it, or as Paul said, they're trying to make another gospel of which there is none. So we have the doctrine, <clears throat> excuse me, but we also have Paul having to defend himself in presenting this doctrine, in presenting this truth. And Paul, <clears throat> he starts out with his testimony, and I won't go through this in detail, uh, Pastor Lee broke it down wonderfully last week. But remember, Paul starts off getting knocked off a horse on his way to destroy other Christians. And it was on, like they say, like Donkey Kong from there. It was right on from there. It was, it, it was the beginning of what brought us to this point. And that is that through that testimony, he says, hey, God took me. God showed me. God presented to me this gospel that I did not know. God let me, led me to the desert where I learned more of him. And then we get to chapter 2, and, and Pastor Lee brought it in with Paul being called, summoned God, again, directly through the Christ, being brought to this Jerusalem council. And here in this council, certain things came on the table. And what were the things that came on the table? The fact that these Judaizers, actually in Acts 15, you see it, it was like Pharisees were sitting at the table basically presenting the fact that 
Yes, you can be saved, but you need the Mosaic law. You need circumcision. And at this council, they were like, we're going to squash this once and for all. We're going to squash this. We're going to take care of this. And at this council, certain else came out. Paul, who was by himself 14 years, who received no counsel from anyone but Christ himself, when he came together with Peter and James and John, you know what he found out? That the gospel that they preach was exactly the gospel that he preached. That the gospel of grace from Christ was unified. It was the same gospel. And when they all high-fived after that, and they wondered, and they looked at that, and they agreed, and they said, hey, listen, uh, Peter, you will continue to preach to the circumcised, and Paul, as he was called by God to do, will preach to the uncircumcised. And that will be the ministries going forward. So if you ask me, Jerusalem Council, that was a, that was a win. You had one other thing. They brought Titus. Titus was a Greek. He was not a Jew. And they were like, no, that guy's got to get circumcised. And at the end of it, they were like, no, he does not have to get circumcised. So we have come to this point now. And I'm going to pause this for a second because what I don't want to happen is that for us to take a purely academic approach to Galatia. We don't want to do that. We don't want to lose in that. We want to learn it. We want to understand it. But we don't want to be academics. And we want to watch how much of our modern perspective we bring to it. Because you know what it is? We, we are, listen, you don't like this church. What do you do? Go down the street to the other church, right? That's how we are. I, I, I don't get it here. I could get it there. I could replace everything. Everything's replaceable. But here, Paul has been brought to teach and preach and proclaim the gospel to the non-circumcised. That is his job. So when we look at this and we say, ah, if not Paul, someone else. No, this is the beginning of the church. The church is beginning. This is the ground floor of the church. There is no, like, bring, bring up Bob from accounting. He could do it. There's none of that going on. It is Paul with Barnabas that is now building this church. So we want to be careful that we don't kind of say, oh, it could be anybody. No. This is the man who was called, and he is now building the church. But what do we notice, though? Paul's having a fight. Now, God called Paul to do this. And what are you noticing? God will call you to things that aren't a cakewalk. God called Paul to do this very thing, and yet Paul is in the struggle for his life to watch a church that he has built through the Spirit of God now be questioned now be brought to possibly shambles. So we see something about our fight as Christians that our fight definitely comes from the outside, if you guys don't know that. But your fight also comes from the inside as well. You know, you contend 
for sound doctrine. You contend for that. And you see it often coming from within the church. But um, Pastor Lee exhorted us last week. I don't know if you remember. And he basically brought the timeline out. And the timeline was like, hey, you know, Pentecost just happened a few years ago. And already we got deviations. Already you have the gospel in its purest sense. As the spirit was poured out on Pentecost. And people were getting saved by the droves. And now you're getting this off theology already. And, and his exhortations to us was, listen, that happened a few years after Pentecost. Don't think for one second that that can't happen to us in the here and now. And in case you need some proofs, let me help you out. Besides the Unification Church, the Church of Christian Science, Jehovah Witness, Mormons. I, I brought those up because I know you, got, you guys are probably thinking, oh, those are, those are fringe groups. Mormons have 15 million members. 15 million. They were not all born into Mormonism. As a matter of fact, if you listen to some testimonies of Mormons, some of them will say, yeah, I was former Lutheran, I was a former Baptist, I was a former Episcopalian, and now I found the truth. But all of these are aberrant, right? They're, they're just so off in their theology, but if you ask them, they say it's the gospel plus nothing. Well, we have this other book, the Book of Mormonism, but it's just the same as the gospel. It's the exact same thing. All of them add something. And you say, well, Dave, there's no way that's going to happen to me. There's no way I will become a Mormon. So let's look at our church then. Let's look at the church. In a survey where people were asked who qualifies to go to heaven by doing good works, it was found that within the Roman Catholic faith, 70% said yes, and that is because Roman Catholicism, if you're a good Roman Catholic, you know that that is a works-based doctrine. It is grace plus works. I'm not saying anything offensive. You can look it up for yourself within, within their own theology. But here's the, here's the rub. When you ask Protestants, evangelical Protestants, how do you get to heaven? 50% say you got to do good works. What? 50% believe that, yes, good works is... So what do we do with Galatians? What do we do with Galatians? So I want you to keep that in mind. I want us to have an understanding of this book that, yes, it was written thousands of years ago, but boy, we need it right this second. You need it right now. So God is the standard of truth in his word. If we don't deviate from that, we'll be okay. But let's get to our text. And as our text begins, I got to go through a few technicalities with you because it's a little rough to start. 
Now, our text begins with a conjunction, which I'm kind of old school, and you're not supposed to start with conjunctions, right? I, if I remember, I mean, now in, in modern day, you know, it's poetic license to do these kind of things. But, you know, you're not supposed to start with an and, try to avoid starting with a but. And here, he starts with a but. This is how this text begins. And I'm thinking, you know, I, I thought a conjunction is supposed to bring together, connect two independent clauses, right? It's English 101, in case you guys are wondering what's going on here. Bring two independent clauses. So you say things like, um, you know, the dinner tasted good, but my stomach hurts. So I create a contrast, right? The dinner tasted good, but my stomach hurts. That's a nice car you have, but why did you choose that color? So I'm saying, hey, that is pretty cool, but I'm creating a contrast. And here, Paul starts with a but. And the but goes into a very negative, negative breakdown. So what's the plus? So let me remind you, remember, Paul is now proving. Remember, he's proving his apostleship. He starts out by proving it through his testimony that God did this. God took me into the desert. God had called me to tell me to go to Jerusalem to talk to the brothers. God blessed that meeting. And now he's saying, I am an apostle such that I had to confront another apostle. I had to confront another apostle. And this confrontation was as they say in the uh, vernacular, for reals. This was for reals. So let's take a look at it. Um, I would also note one other technical note. Um, <clears throat> most management training for personnel would tell you praise in public, criticize in private. Paul did not read that on this one, okay? He did not follow that. Um, but if we go right into it, we will see... <clears throat> Right away, starting at verse 14, he says to, at the end of verse 14, you see what this confrontation was in words. And he says to Peter before an audience, he says, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? Peter, what are you doing? And I brought you to that line so you could see this is the meat of this confrontation. And I will go again, and I will quote Pastor Lee's uh, last week. And <clears throat> before we get right into the guts of this, I will quote him, and he said, Christianity is messy. And this is a perfect example on how it is messy. Because when we look at this text, I'm kind of stunned at it a little bit. Because look, listen, you know what this text is like? It's like hearing your parents argue. These are two leaders in the church. And this is a confrontation, the type where I'm sure everybody in the house heard. These were apostles of Christ. 
These are two men saved by grace. These are two men under the lordship of Jesus Christ. These are two men led by God. These are two men that have writings in the very Bible we read, inspired writings in the very Bible we read. These are two men filled with the Holy Spirit. And yet here they are having a major clash before the church at Antioch. Now, let's talk about what this isn't. This wasn't a disagreement over what color to paint the synagogue. This wasn't a disagreement about what type of music was preferred for worship. This wasn't a disagreement about the style of preaching that should come from the pulpit. This wasn't even a doctrinal issue, a theological issue, a Christological issue. This had nothing to do with any of that things, with any of those things. Actually, this wasn't even an argument. This was Paul confronting Peter, and it says in verse 14, why? When I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel. Newsflash, there is conduct that is appropriate to a soul that has been saved. Salvation shows. Does everybody get that? Surrender to the living God shows. You can't talk about that and not have it show. There's something that you will see visibly that Paul was able to see that showed. And verse 12 gives us the insight. For before certain men came from James, he was eating, this is referring to Peter, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separating, separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. Let's break that down real quick. At the Jerusalem Council, we had James, Peter, and John, and they were all in agreement. Paul was there, Barnabas was there, Titus was there, others was there, other leaders were there. And there was an agreement, they all agreed. But you have these guys saying that they came from James. Now, James was a prominent leader in the church of Jerusalem. So it would be like me going down the street, causing a ruckus at the church down the street, and saying I, I'm from Pastor Lee's church. Doesn't mean Pastor Lee sent me, but I am from that church. So please excuse my ruckus. You know, that's exactly what it's saying. So these guys came from James Church, as it says, and it says he, meaning Peter, was eating with the Gentiles. And let's define what this eating was. They had, in Acts, you see, they had these agape love feasts. And what happened was people would bring these, like, potluck dinners together, and the early church wanted to do everything together. 
Remember, they sold properties. They shared everything. The Spirit of God poured out so richly on them. They loved being together. And they loved hearing the word of God. But at these agape feasts, they would also break bread. They would also have communion. These would be the feasts that were common to communion. And here, we see that Peter's almost like separating himself at communion. Now let's give Peter some, some uh, let's give Peter a little clarification here. Peter in Acts 10 has a vision. Some of you maybe recall this. He has a vision and this sheet comes down with all these animals that as a Jew you would never eat. And in that vision, he hears the voice of God say, Peter, kill and eat. Peter, kill and eat. This vision happens three times. And remember, in the Bible, if it happens three times, it's trying to tell you something. Three times it happens, and following that vision, he has another encounter, another spiritual encounter, where he is told to go to the, to the home of Cornelius. So here, within a short chapter of chapter 10 in Acts, he's invited to all these foods that he never ate, and he's invited to the home of a Gentile, of whom when he talked to him about Jesus Christ, he and his whole family became saved. So now Peter has been, as a Jew, a good Jew who would never walk into the house of a Gentile, he has been freed from all the things he was used to, all these mosaic holdowns that he had on him. So when he was sharing food with the brothers at Galatia, there was a freedom that Peter had that he did not have before. But it says he did something there. The Greek word, I will not try to say it, but it's a tactical word. In other words, what Peter did is this. Each time he met with these guys, you know, hey, how you doing? Nice tunic. Hey, is that new? And he would slowly separate himself until it was at the point where he was no longer eating with the very people he would have communion with. So if you want to understand the impact of this, there it is. Now, um, this is tough because you say, well, Peter, not Peter, <laughs> you know, when you look at the Gospels, you say Peter's had many awkward moments, many awkward moments, right? I mean, Jesus, if that's you, tell me to come out on the water, and you come out, and then you stop looking at Jesus, and you start sinking, or uh, him cutting off the ear when they're coming to grab Jesus of, you know, one of the guards, and Jesus tell him, put your sword back, or um, him saying, hey, let's build a tent for Elijah, and Moses, while they're here, and I'll, you know, hey, we'll, we'll, they'll, these ghosts, I guess, will be staying here for the night. And, 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 and it's so awkward that I, you know, when I look at Peter in the Gospels, I say, you know, I, I think I could be a disciple. This guy is so, he's so trippy. I'm like, I, I thought it was hard to do, but I, I could actually do this. But this is the same Peter 
who preached on the day of Pentecost and 3,000 souls were saved. This is that St. Peter. And when we look at this, we say, oh my, but this is the St. Peter that says this in Acts 15, 7. It says, Peter stood up and said to them, brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? Isn't this the very question that Paul is asking Peter? Peter, you don't even live like that, man. Verse 11, but we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will. Just, yes, amen. Just as they will. So when you look at Peter and you say, what happened to Peter? That brings us to the title of today's sermon, The Fear of Men. You see, I looked at this text, and when you look at this text, it's only three or four verses, and you look at it, and you, you, you give it that theological look, and you, you cross-reference it, and you, you look up the Greek words, and you, you're trying to break this down, and you realize that all it comes down to was he was afraid of the party of the circumcision. In other words... Peter still believed the gospel, but he failed to practice it. I think anybody here should be able to identify that with that. I know I do. He knew everything about the gospel, but he failed to practice it. And unfortunately, folks, when these things happen, there's always collateral damage. And I would like to first think of, it's not in the text, but here you've been breaking bread with me and my Galatian brothers. We've been having a time of fellowship that's probably unlike anything, because it's the early church. It's the, it's the wet cement in the form church. And now Peter and these guys that came here, Barnabas, who came with Paul and brought us the gospel. These guys won't even sit with us. They won't even eat with us. They're actually kind of looking at us weird. Like maybe we ain't saved. That's got to be a little bit of the damage, and I think there's more. Peter refused to eat with these guys, and there's an implicit statement there that Gentile believers are not equal. That the justification that God granted to Gentiles as a result of their faith in the gospel was of no effect 
unless they adopted some of the practices of Jewish law. Otherwise, they would not be equal members. And I think the strength of Paul's rebuke, if you think Paul was just a little too tough, was Paul realized that Peter is denying the heart of the gospel such that this could fracture the church. This could break the church. And I think Paul, even more than Peter, probably had great anguish at Barnabas, his boy. This is the guy he built churches with. And this must have run like a sword through him. Barnabas, you too? We were just, we were just talking about how we were just building churches. We were speaking to the Gentiles and how it was well-received. And now you, I think this probably hurt him the most. But if you're wondering what Paul's heart was towards the Galatians, you see it in Galatians 4. And I didn't, I didn't do the whole passage, but at the beginning in Galatians 4, around 14, it talks about how Paul came to them and he was ailed and, and that, you know, he knew it was kind of a burden for them, but that they received him so gladly because they received his message and it had such weight and it had such effect that he says that you guys would have gouged out your own eyes for me. And now he's saying, now what's happened to you? Because this word of Judaizing, this, this alternate gospel is now took hold within the church. It hasn't taken over the church. That's why we still have the rest of the letter. But it's already changed things. It already has them bound. He says this in verse 19, My little children, for who I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. He says again, here's something to remember. If you start pouring into somebody's life and start pouring the gospel into their life, it will cost you. It's going to cost you. It's not, hey, read these four spiritual laws. You got it? You're saved? Good luck. It's not that at all. He had to pour his life in to build these churches. And now he's saying, I got to do it again to save you from this nonsense. So there's a heart. If you want to know what Paul's heart is towards the Galatian church, there it is. There it is. But as we close, the postscript was good for these guys, right? I mean, uh, both, even after this incident, continued to grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Both, inspired by the Holy Spirit, continued to write. As a matter of fact, if you want to know if Peter ever improved, you could read First and Second Peter, see if he came around. I would encourage you to do that. Um, and both ran the race until God called them home. Martin Luther gives a comment on, in, in his commentary on this, and I think uh, we, we could all kind of grab a hold of this somewhere. 
He says regarding this passage in Galatians, he said, no man standing is so secure that he may not fall. If Peter fell, I may fall. If he rose again, I may rise again. We have the same gifts that they had, the same Christ, the same baptism, and the same gospel, the same forgiveness of sins. This text, you look at this text and you say, well, this text is about hypocrisy. And I think, uh, no, I think hypocrisy was the result. Right? And this was a weird kind of hypocrisy because most of the time in hypocrisy, I show you the good face and I do my evil deeds, right? That's usually the hypocrisy hypocrisy of the church is that I'm living a life that is totally without Christ and I come here and again, to borrow from last week, I check a box to show I'm good to go. But God will not be mocked. We all know that, right? That's what the Bible says. You will not mock God by coming in and checking boxes. Every one of us will be held accountable for what he did with the gospel. Every single one of us. But what we do see here, we see that this add-on to the gospel was already starting to take away the freedom from the Galatians. We see that this add-on to the gospel even had Peter all bound up in knots, not acting the way he should. And I'll, I'll leave you with this. The salvation that is provided through Jesus Christ, the salvation that God provides through his son does one thing. It should cause you to glorify God. And if you are not sure whether I'm dancing around, adding something to the gospel, if you do not glorify God for the freedom you have in Christ, not the freedom to sin, but to freedom to complete the will of God as he wants done. If that doesn't make you say glory to God because I have brought not one thing to this equation, not one thing, it truly is a gift of God. Amen? Let's pray. Dear Lord, uh, I thank you for your word. I thank you that... um, You give us your word. You give us your word to reveal yourself. And your word shows us ourselves. It shows us how much we need you. Lord, reveal the gospel anew to us, Father, so we could see it for what it is. So we could walk as Christians in freedom, not afraid of men, but happy and joyful to proclaim salvation to men through Jesus Christ. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.